everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels. I'm Ilana Betel. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, and defense. In this episode, we'll be discussing women in leadership, and we're very pleased to have with us Francis Allen, Lieutenant General Francis Allen, Military Representative Candidate in NATO, and Nadia Kovalchikova, Program Manager and Fellow at the German Marshall Fund here in Brussels. Good evening to you both, ladies. Good evening. Good evening. It's a pleasure to have you and a pleasure to see you, though nobody else can. And let me start by telling a little about myself. I am amongst the founders of WISE in Brussels way back 20 years ago, and currently am a member of the Senior Advisory Board in WISE. I started my career in media and academe, and I have a PhD in history from University College London, and then moved into the United Nations where I was a peacekeeper in Bosnia and Kosovo and spent quite a few years in the Department for Peacekeeping Operations and eventually, like many people, ended up for six weeks in Brussels 22 years ago. Ever since, I have been working both in the private sector and advising the public sector. Francis, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? My goodness, I'm not sure that I'm able to top that, but I will I will certainly give you my background. It's not a competition. Uh, no, it is not. Uh, I joined uh, the Canadian Forces back in, gosh, 1983, I think it was, and really for the purposes of going to university. That was my goal, my objective. Uh, uh, and 37 years later, uh, here I am still. I really have enjoyed it. I've been really fortunate to be able to um, uh, work in the communications and electronics engineering field, but that sort of morphed as as the military tends to allow you to to work through uh, careers into cyber uh, and cyber operations and that has really been the the focus of my um, professional employment up until this point in time and then just this past summer uh, I came here to Brussels to uh, sit on the military committee and represent the Canadian uh, Chief of Defence Staff um, in providing military advice to the NAC so that's how I got to Brussels. Fascinating. Nadia, can you tell us a bit? Yes, uh, and it's such a pleasure to be able to be here tonight with both of you and discuss uh, on this important topic. And my experience is a bit different. I have a PhD in international economic relations, so I am kind of a political scientist out of academic background. But my experience also is related to NATO. I worked at NATO for several years and in the European institutions and some NGOs and embassies. So it's a combination of this uh, political, academic and kind of civil society sector. And that's probably somehow how I ended up in this uh, think tank role uh, today in Brussels. I came to Brussels a decade ago. So I, uh, by now I feel quite uh, familiar with this uh, heart of Europe. And yes, I am very much uh, looking forward to, to discussing with you tonight. Excellent. Well, ladies, I think the first question we should really pose is, is there such a thing that is unique about women in leadership? I'm often asked that question and often rather flummoxed by it myself in the simple sense that I don't know if there is something special about women being in leadership. When I was much younger, that was partly because women didn't have the opportunity to do too much leadership. So it was very special because, you know, whoever made it to a leadership position um, you know, 
it was unique. But I think that it is worth asking ourselves, is there such a thing that is special about women in leadership? Maybe we'll start actually with Nadia. What do you think? I do think there is something special about that. Uh, I mean, today we still need to speak about uh, women leadership because there is uh, less women leadership than I hope there will be in the future. And it's very relevant to recognize that and, and address this uh, and work on having more women in leadership positions. Uh, I would maybe just exemplify it with uh, some examples of uh, women leadership. For example, in New Zealand, uh, with the Prime Minister uh, Jacinda Ardern, she is not only leader herself, but she also recently appointed the Minister for Foreign Affairs to be another woman with links to indigenous communities. And therefore, she's elevating other women and giving important leadership positions to women that have experiences that are necessary for leading the country today. We could speak about many other examples, uh, be the, the president of Slovakia, Zuzana Čapudova, the youngest women president in the region ever, or uh, many scientists and doctors, which really matter, especially if you look at the pandemic uh, crisis today. And many times I think even in the leadership positions, we pay much more attention to the visible leadership positions, to more political roles, but there are so many women that are in leadership positions, let's say so-called behind the scenes or in less visible roles, but still having a very important leadership position. So I think there is a unique uh, factor, the fact that there are many women and we don't really see them many times, that uh, another unique is that women are not equally represented, there are structural inequalities in our systems, so that, uh, that needs to be addressed. But also that I think the expectations from the younger generations today are to see more of uh, diversity in the leadership roles. And and I hope there will be beyond men and women. I think that's a very good point that you've brought. But nonetheless, I would press you just very briefly, what is special about women in leadership as opposed to numbers and their actual presence? I think there are some analyses what women do differently than men in leadership roles in terms of sharing power or sharing information or making others' self-worth more visible or bringing them in and lifting them up as kind of a leadership uh, style, we could say. I think it's difficult to say it in a general way that all women do this and uh, all men do something else. But I do think that we see certain characteristics from at least the few examples I gave already and many others that we could probably name today that have exemplified this type of uh, style that I do think is uh, probably more unique uh, to women. Okay, well, we'll come back to that. Francis, what do you think from um, what is special about women in leadership, if anything? You know, I guess what I would say that I think uh, having women in leadership position brings to the table is the combination, really, of the two things that Nadia spoke about. One is that when people can see people who are like them in leadership positions, they grow aspirations for themselves. They believe that's something that I can do. I see myself, I recognize what's the potential for me. But on the characteristics uh, side of the house, I would actually say that I think that there are differences that um, women leaders tend, and I hate to generalize, but tend to bring to the fold because their leadership styles that they've acquired over time uh, are are a little bit um, different and varied. I'm not saying that everybody can't have those leadership styles. I think anybody can apply a multitude of styles in leading people to, towards outcomes. 
But those that women often bring uh, to the to the fold are more consultative, more collaborative, more engaging, simply because that's what you needed to do to get a seat at the table in the first place. And so by having that type of a leadership style was your way of getting in the door, your way of trying to uh, bring others along to your idea. And I think it actually accomplishes that. It brings others along. And that's a leadership quality, I think, that is actually what we aspire to when we when we talk about what leadership is and what management is. Leadership truly is that bringing people with you um, aspect of achieving a goal, I would say, and going forward with that. So, so to me, I think there, I wouldn't say that it's categorically black and white, much like Nadia said, but I often think that women do bring a different style with them as their natural style as opposed to the style that we can all assume, given the different circumstances that we might find ourselves in. I think that's very interesting. I think we have a generational issue here, which is very, very interesting. When I think back to the first, you know, prominent women leaders, Golda Meir, Indira Gandhi, uh, the last thing, Margaret Thatcher, they didn't promote women. Um, They were tough as nails. They'd usually risen to the top, largely because they had to, interaction with men, solely. And the last thing you could say about them was that they were consultative or anything else. They were as dictatorial as they came. So I do think that the new generation or the younger generations of women coming in are presenting an alternative, which is very interesting. It was one of the things that really struck me, in fact, about someone like Golda Meir or Indira Gandhi. They didn't consult anyone other than their, you know, the people who would ensure that their career stayed fast, which is, you know, no different from any man who would have done it in one way or another. For me, when I look at, you know, I think, you know, the example of Jacinda Hearn or, um, you know, the wonderful ensemble of women in uh, um, Finland currently, um, it is very empowering um, to see people who just feel naturally that they can be themselves and also be politicians and leaders. And I think that's really something wonderful because I think it, it it suggests that things have changed a lot. I don't know if it's changed a lot also in the military. What do you think, Francis? I would say that it has, but it takes it takes an effort for that to actually take place. What you said is 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 completely right in the sense that you gain acceptance by seeming like the people around you. So if you adopt the qualities of the people around you, you will be accepted by them better. Uh, is sort of how it has always been, as opposed to the difference that you bring being valued uh, in an organization and the difference of thought. I certainly know that in an organization like the military, we've always set up sort of structures and guidelines on what is the right way to do something and the right way to act, the right way to, and that's good as it pertains to moral compass and all of those other types of things. But if you are um, a quiet spoken person, And the way through which you are assessed as having command presence is to be loud and forceful. It's not going to be something that, number one, you actually want to adopt or number two, that you'll probably be very good at. So I I think that we have to think about how we are assessing people, how we in an organization like ours in the military, where you groom, guide and build leaders going forward, that what you're looking for in a leader can't be photocopies of the same style. You actually need a variety and focus on the outcomes that people are able to achieve with the styles that they that they use um, for uh, the work that's in front of them. I think, 
you've raised some very, very interesting points, not least one that we've discussed before amongst ourselves, which is the difference between a leader and a manager. Now, I know that Nadia has reservations. Is there really a difference between a leader and a manager? Um, for me, there's massive differences between a leader and a manager. So actually, why don't we start in the negative and go to Nadia, first of all, and say, why don't you think there's a difference between a leader and a manager? Well, I wouldn't say that there is no difference or that, uh, you know, that uh, it's the same thing. Uh, on the contrary, I think that speaking about the management and leadership are kind of two different topics in a way. I think leader, the expectations from a leader are similar to a manager at some point or at some level. But uh, I think with leader, you expect uh, also some more of the vision or longer term inspiration or some kind of a different emotion, if I can even say that, or or um, maybe even experience. I think a good manager can be someone who can also have a very good organizational skills and communication skills and, and other type of skills that um, some leaders might or might not have, but uh, need to have extra in order to, to lead people, to make people want to follow them and not necessarily uh, oblige them just because of some kind of a superiority uh, within the function. So I think this this is kind of probably the characteristic that I see in a leader being different. That you know people people kind of aspire to leaders, while people don't necessarily have to aspire to managers uh, above them in their daily work. Do you agree with that, Francis? I do, and I and I really do think it's that it's the way, it's the how that separates a manager and and a leader. Because you know a manager is focused on doing the right things with the right tools to achieve the right outcome. And a leader is more invested in the way in which you do that, which is to engage people, make them invested in what it is those outcomes are and how we're going to get there and how we could do it and what are the best ways. And that uh, th there are some, some ways of committing people to that process that comes with being a leader which is different than being a manager who is simply ensuring that steps are followed by people doing the right thing. And, and of course, leaders are at all levels in an organization. In, in the hierarchical organizational structure, even at the lowest level of the structure, the new entrance into any particular uh, organization or field, there are leaders. There are peer leaders who, who people gravitate to because they influence others, sometimes positively or negatively, but because they influence others and their behaviors and their thoughts. And so leaders are everywhere. Managers tend to be at a particular level in the organization who have outcomes they're responsible for. Uh, leaders do exist actually across the breadth of an organization. I think there's a lot in that. From my personal perspective, I think leadership is a lot about the vision thing as opposed to the management thing. And we tend to confuse the two. If I can give a small recommendation, I've just finished reading Julian Jackson's monumental autobiography of Charles de Gaulle. And when I say monumental, it's over a thousand pages. So beware and be warned. But he was a very competent manager simply because he'd, he'd risen through the military, but had remarkably little interest in it in his leadership role. He just assumed somebody else would manage things. And in fact, most of the leaders, great leaders, small leaders that you think about, 
tend to be like that. My sense is that women have never been given the space to be like that, to just say somebody else can deal with the other stuff. And um, we just are going to do the vision thing and people will follow us and somebody else will deal with the management. But within organizations, especially if I come back to the two, my perception is often having worked in a lot of organizations over my years, that people do confuse management with leadership. A competent manager is not necessarily a leader. They're a competent manager. And they're very rare and should be enshrined, but they don't necessarily have a vision that will take you to the next place, that will have people follow them because they would know what's going on or where the organization is going, or the department, or the small group of three people. That is a good manager, knowing what is happening, how it's going to happen, what the process is. A leader is somebody who sort of raises their stakes and just sort of sees where it's all going and somehow manages to, through force of personality, force of speech, be able to rally people around them and to have them follow them um, in one way or another to go somewhere else, to, to, to move on to the next place. And I think women are very good at that naturally and have just never asserted themselves in that role, which is why someone like, I come back to Jacinda Ardern, she just is a natural at it. She has zero problem in just saying, this is what it's at and follow me. She doesn't seem to be a particularly good manager. Lots of people complain if you follow the New Zealand press about all kinds of things that aren't particularly well managed. But she does have the vision and the leadership thing. Francis. That's, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's a, a subtlety in there somewhere that I wouldn't want, you know, somebody who's thinking about, am I a leader to get lost on? And, and that is that, I would say it's the, the balance or the contradiction between being collaborative and consultative and visionary. Because I, I don't think everybody must be like the visionary of something wildly differently brand new to be a leader. I think they can have an idea that things should change or where we should go, but not quite know exactly the steps that it's going to take to get there and can draw upon others and using those skills of engaging, of bringing the best with you, of uh, having people invested in that idea, that goal, so that people shouldn't be afraid that they aren't a leader or couldn't be a leader because they're not sure that they're a visionary. I think there are some amazing visionary leaders out there. And I think there's a lot of people who know where they would like things to be and know that they need lots of people and their ideas and their input to help uh, get to that place. Nadia? Yeah, I a lot of lot of good points. Uh, and talking about kind of the the future, right? Like if you speak about the vision, so where are we going? What do we expect from leaders today and of tomorrow? And I think on top of all of these qualities that I think are are important, I think now the expectations are more for an action as well. We have had structural inequalities in our systems for too long. And the younger generations, we could even name Greta Thunberg, the climate change movements, the Me Too movements, other movements, show that people and the younger generations expect from leaders to maybe not only speak about their vision, but really do action, apply it, show this dynamism, uh, the willingness to reverse these uh, structural inequalities, and, uh, and lead uh, 
lead the generations that normally may have their own leaders too, but we cannot have these generational gaps and with the technology and information space and, and internationalization, I think people look up more towards also leaders beyond their usual bubbles or the countries. And I think the responsibility also of the leaders is, is bigger in that sense in a way, because they have much wider audiences and they, they may inspire or discourage or uh, be good or bad examples. As, uh, as Francis mentioned, you know, leader can be good or bad. Uh, just being a leader is not necessarily in, in, uh, a positive always. Um, depends, are you a good leader? So I think the, the qualities we expect need to also lead to the action that people need uh, to reverse these structural inequalities and have more diversity in the leadership positions. So is it a question of confidence, both confidence of the person in themselves and confidence of people in that person? Are you suggesting, and I'm asking Nadia this, are you suggesting that uh, younger women, younger generations um, overall don't have confidence in leadership because they're not doing what they want or they don't feel represented within it? I think it's a bit uh, um, hard to speak on behalf of them. Uh, but what I perceive uh, as, as needed is to take also responsibility in a way that uh, younger generations need to see that uh, there is a recognition for the challenges uh, that were potentially undermined uh, so far. I will just give concrete example of the climate change. Climate change is a very long-term problem that no government can solve. Governments are elected for a short period of time and they move on. And this issue has been ongoing. And who do we see is taking the lead on this? Well, it's really the young people across many countries that have pushed this agenda forward. I mean, this has been an issue for decades. And we need these young people to push this forward. So I think there it came out of certain uh, uh, expectations, frustrations, maybe lack of action. And, and younger generations, maybe thanks to also the technology, the options of connecting with people across borders that have uh, similar interests and, and we could even say vision or, or needs to, to combat these challenges together, have mobilized. And I think this mobilization across borders allows also younger generations or different groups, you know, societal groups, as we spoke, spoke about, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter movements or, or different, you know, issues of the Me Too or others to, to unite in a way. And that's why I think the action is not only expectations from the leaders, but they kind of take it into their own hands at the same time. And so should they, I think, uh, you know, we all play a role. Do you perceive there to be a particular women's role in that? I think women need to play a role they feel they can play. Uh, they need to feel empowered. And I think seeing women leaders can empower and inspire other women. It can be a symbolic uh, as well as very practical way when other women bring in other women and lift them up. Um, uh, but not only, we also need to inspire men because there are so many men in leadership positions that they also, I think it's in everyone's interest to have the right leaders in the leadership positions. So I think uh, uh, if women can play that role and have now more opportunities or, or, um, or are empowered to do that, they should if they want to. But the choice and the opportunity and uh, have to go hand in hand at the same time, I think. So for you, empowerment is across the board. Uh, Francis, let's go and look at 
organizations, because organizations is where a lot of people still spend their lives. Um, how do you perceive women in organizations today? Can you also, given, as you say, 37 years in one organization, that gives a wonderful perspective on, is there, has there been a change in the perception of women and of women in leadership in the Canadian Army? Or Canadian military, rather. Oh, that's fine. Uh, I'm in the Air Force, actually. Um, the there certainly has from the time that I that I joined. I mean, very shortly after I joined the military in Canada, all um, military occupations were open to both men and women. So uh, it uh, the the initial uh, organizational buffer uh, was was put aside, and I'll tell you, it's because the courts said we would. Uh, that that took place. But then there was all of the internal um, uh, elements and support and functions that need to evolve to change to actually let that happen so that the environment changes, so that uh, opportunities, so that the way that you look and assess and um, uh, uh, create, you know, bathrooms for people that are in the building that they are going to be working in, like the structural infrastructure that you need to take a look at to make sure that that can all happen. I've certainly seen it change, but I'll, I'll tell you, it's not just about men and women. It's about creating diversity in the organization, not just by gender, but uh, by uh, for us in Canada, we care about where in Canada you come from because we're such a huge country that we actually think about do we uh, have a good representation of people from all segments of society, from all geographical regions, so that we're trying to be representative of our people within our military. And that's a you have to take some action to make that happen. It doesn't just happen unless you're willing to wait 30 years or 40 years for it to very slowly percolate. You actually need to take action. And to be honest with you, that's where the leadership must get involved because they have the power levers within an organization to make the change, to say, no, we are actually going to do this differently. And it's uncomfortable and awkward because you, you don't know necessarily if everything that you're doing is right. And so you um, feel perhaps that you should know all of these things and you don't, but you're committed to making change. And you're committed to providing opportunities for people to feel like they are included in uh, the way that you are, are making decisions. Uh, as a very hierarchical organization in the military where, you know, rank, what you wear, everything uh, sort of tells everybody what your position is within an organization. For somebody who's very high in the organization to seek the opinion of an entry-level person within the organization, generally we don't have the structures to do that. We don't have the mechanisms to do that consultation, to have those inputs come in. So that's what we have to do. We actually need to create structure that makes that happen because it's based upon a, a, a organizational structure which creates separation between functions. You need to find something that cuts vertically that allows you to actually engage uh, up and down the organization. And that takes change. And only the leaders of an organization can force that change. It can be demanded from below, but it, it needs to be implemented from above to make it truly happen. Nonetheless, to be fair to your organization, presumably when you joined it 37 years ago, was it an organization that would have perceived of women rising to the rank of a lieutenant general? I doubt it. You know, I think it was probably in the calculus that maybe one day it would happen. But you're probably um, going to be childless 
and uh, maybe probably not married and, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out how that fits uh, from a societal perspective. We didn't think about the balances that we would need to implement organizationally to let that be something that didn't have people say along the way, I can't see myself on that path. I can't see the path that lets me get to that position of influence in my organization, while at the same time lets me uh, have what I want to enjoy uh, as part of my life. And that has slowly changed over time. But I think in the very beginning, you know, it was, okay, all jobs are open. Yay. Okay. <laughs> now there is so much more. And, and, and I say that facetiously. I think that was indeed the first step. It was then quite clearly that we recognized we have lots of work to do before that is uh, really going to be the case. And it continues today. It always continues. There's no um, point in in which it stops. And and I, I it suddenly occurred to me that for our audience, it may be worthwhile pointing out that a lieutenant general is the most senior, but one in most armies. In some armies, it's the most senior rank. Uh, in the Canadian Army, I think you do have four star generals. So lieutenant, we do our chief of defense. Right, lieutenant general is a three star general, and it's a very remarkable rank to achieve. And I think you're the first one in the Canadian Army? No, no. Before me was Christine Whitecross. And she actually was part of NATO as well. She was the commandant of the NATO Defence College uh, just before her retirement. In uh, Rome? In Rome, yes. Such a great posting. (laughs) (laughs) Nonetheless, let us try towards the end of our lovely discussion to come back to the issue of women and leadership. Um, We've discussed leadership as it is today and what we aspire to and where women are within it. Nadia, if you could close your eyes, what would be your leadership position that you would dream of? (laughs) Um, A dream. Uh, Well, I think, and this must be very, very utopian in a way, but, you know, kind of leadership position where you are able to make people um, live in peace in a way, you know, I do not know, it's hard to give it a title, would it be the Secretary of General of the United Nations that could do this, although I, I'm not really sure we see with current dynamics the, the role of states and the, you know, the importance of different uh, national interests, etc. So it's hard to say, but I think as a, as a leader, wherever the position would be, I just would hope to bring the positive impact and, and provide this vision, the path that others will be inspired to follow and will help them. And they will then help others to elevate others and bring in others into, into important positions that will make uh, all of us better lift our standards and uh, perhaps really um, improve and, uh, and uh, reverse the the structural issues in our societies and the inequalities uh, as much as possible. I think that would be. If that happens, I'd be I'd be glad. That sounds wonderful. Francis, <laughs> once you've got through your dream job currently, what's your next dream job? I have to tell you, I think I do uh, have the dream job. I am working with an amazing a group of people. I'm at a level in my organization where I can create influence 
uh, uh, on the policies that we have, on the outcomes that we're going for. Uh, and I uh, and I work with a very strong team back in Canada as well. And so I, I actually do think that I am uh, doing something that I, I love and that I'm passionate about. The thing that I do know is that uh, I can't keep thinking that I know it all myself because I don't. Uh, if there's anything that I've learned, it's that as you move and go up in an organization and change jobs, you lose touch with the challenges that other people face simply because you don't face them anymore. You've moved through that particular phase, you know, from childbearing years to uh, thinking about daycare to all of those challenges that you might have. I, I, my son's 28 years old. I don't have that, you know, a thing in the back of my mind anymore. And so, you know, unless I hear from other people about what are their challenges? What are the things that are keeping them up at night? What are the concerns they have about what we're doing as an organization? You, you can't make that influence and change. And so I'm, uh, I'm very excited to be where I am and having the capacity to do what I do. But I know that I can't do that without actually uh, understanding what it is that others see and what it is that they believe that we should be doing so that I can help uh, make that change go forward. Well, that sounds absolutely wonderful. My dream is to create an organization that's dedicated entirely to civic education, because I believe that our um, main problem today is the absence of civic education in many places. And that is a seriously uh, problematic for our democracies. And we really have to go back to the very basics and teach and instill and cherish civic education. So if I had a an option to do that, I would be um, a very, very happy person indeed. Um, I think we've covered lots of really interesting issues to do with women in leadership and leadership in general and aspirations. And we've joined together generations. We've joined together women, which is by far, by far the most important thing. I have to give a very big thank you to Frances Allen and to Nadia Kovalchikova. Wonderful discussants for a very, very interesting subject. Thank you both very much. And thank you for everyone for listening. Um, that's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at, at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast applications. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel, and thanks for joining us, and stay tuned for more great conversations. Oh,